to episode 24 of Life and Life Only, and this is The Art of Happiness. Now, last year I did a three-part episode on the book Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. Those were episodes 11 to 13, if you want to check them back in the archive. And the format then was to try to select salient parts of the book, although, as with this one, there was a danger of reading the whole book. But uh, I managed to pick out a few parts from each section, and then I was interjecting if something came to me about what I was reading. So it's going to be the same thing. So if you liked that episode or those episodes last year, I think you're really going to enjoy these. So The Art of Happiness is a book written in 1998, but it is essentially timeless. The wisdom in it is timeless. And on that subject, I've just recently redone the audiobook of How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And while I was reading it, I forgot, sort of willingly forgot, when it was written, there were lots of situations, a lot of them being work situations, business situations, people going to the office, dealing with their boss, etc. That wasn't only that, there was a lot more besides that. And then I had to sort of, halfway through, I had to remember and actually check when it was written. And it was, I think it was 1937. And thinking, that was before the Second World War. And um, for listeners of my other podcast, Glass Onion, that was before the Beatles, for God's sake. There was a world before the Beatles, believe it or not. And you can take that back even further. Last year I read... Uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and you know then you're going back to the period of the Roman Empire and then even further back the art of war as well goes back even centuries before that and it's very interesting that all these things can still be used in 2022 so 1998 is uh, just a moment ago really this book is in really the self-development genre but with some spiritual ideas and spiritual has become a bit of a loaded word become a bit of a cliche but I think there is a point in this book actually where we discuss what that really means and just to make a very quick distinction between self-development and self-help because self-help gets rubbished a little bit or disregarded and I'm sure there are some good self-help books but probably the distinction I would make is that self-help often not always it's almost giving you a passive role and saying well you can lose weight in however much time or change your life in 30 days or whatever I'm not saying that that's not possible but what you'll find here one of the bits I'm going to read about the Dalai Lama, what he says is uh, a lot of this takes slow, patient work and it's not glamorous, but because these things can be applied to your normal life, you can read a bit of this book and you can go out of your door and have an interaction with someone and change that interaction and maybe even have a bit of magic in that interaction. So it's a slow process perhaps to make big transformations, but all this stuff in the book is very accessible and quite easy to put into practice or it's simple at least you know we have to make a distinction between simple and easy you know saying there shouldn't be any more war is a very simple thing but it's very very difficult to implement just for those who don't know this is essentially conversations between Howard Cutler who is a psychiatrist from the USA and the Dalai Lama whose real name is Tenzin Gayatso hope I didn't butcher that He's the former head of state of Tibet, and Dalai Lama is a title given to the highest spiritual leader of the Gelug school of Tibetan Buddhism, which is the newest school of Buddhism. He has been in exile in India since 1959. I think he originally moved to Dharamasala. I'm not sure if he's still there now, but certainly he's in India. There was an uprising by um, the peasants in Tibet. According to Wikipedia, it was mostly peaceful, and the Chinese army brutally put them down i'm sure the truth is not as simple as that but that's anyway the dalai lama's 
essential biography. So it's a it's a meeting of West and East, and Cutler actually challenges the Dalai Lama on a few things. So it's not just you know a starry eyed psychiatrist going to the the great Dalai Lama and just swallowing everything he says. He doesn't. I'm not sure if the bits I'm going to read are the perhaps more confrontational bits, but I would encourage you, even if you get to the end of this, and it's shaping up to be quite epic considering how many things I've picked out to read, we'll see how that goes. But even if you stick this out to the end, I would still say read the book. Or perhaps you could start with this, and if it whets your appetite, go to the book, because it, you know there's lots and lots of gold in there. Just before I start reading, just to say that my overall impression or the overall impression given of the Dalai Lama in this book is of quite a humble man, you know, a wise man, but not a man who believes he has all the answers, and that will even come up in the very first section. He also laughs a lot, and um, again, just to make a quick Beatles reference, one of the things that they were impressed by with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who they famously went to see in Rishikesh in 1968, Ringo Starr later said, oh, I liked him because he was laughing a lot. And I've heard this a lot because I've been on quite a few uh, meditation retreats and things like that. And uh, people like gurus who laugh because it means they don't take themselves too seriously. Of course, they may have different personalities. You can get extrovert spiritual gurus and monks and introverts. You know, they're not all going to be one thing. But uh, obviously the impression given in this book is of a man who is at peace with himself. But also in the book, he takes pains to say that he's still learning. You know, like I say, he doesn't have all the answers. And even, you know, 23, 24 years later, after this book, he probably still doesn't believe he's got all the answers. This book is divided into five sections, although the fifth one is very short. The first one is the purpose of life, second, human warmth and compassion, three, transforming suffering, four, overcoming obstacles, and number five, closing reflections on leading a spiritual life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to quote the subsections, or I might quote the chapter headings as well, just to give you an idea of the area that I'm reading about. So this is actually from the introduction here, and this is uh, Howard Cutler, the psychiatrist, talking. Over time, I became convinced that the Dalai Lama had learned how to live with a sense of fulfillment and a degree of serenity that I had never seen in other people. I was determined to identify the principles that enabled him to achieve this. Although he is a Buddhist monk with a lifetime of Buddhist training and study, I began to wonder if one could identify a set of his beliefs or practices that could be utilised by non-Buddhists as well. Practices that could be directly applied to our lives to simply help us become happier, stronger, perhaps less afraid. Eventually I had an opportunity to explore his views in greater depth, meeting with him daily during his stay in Arizona and following up these discussions with more extensive conversations at his home in India. As we conversed, I soon discovered that we had some hurdles to overcome as we struggled to reconcile our different perspectives. His as a Buddhist monk and mine as a Western psychiatrist. I began one of our first sessions, for example, by posing to him certain common human problems, illustrating them with several lengthy case histories. Having described a woman who persisted in self-destructive behaviours despite the tremendous negative impact on her life, I asked him if he had an explanation for this behaviour and what advice he could offer. I was taken aback when, after a long pause and reflection, he simply said, I don't know, and shrugging his shoulders, laughed good-naturedly. Noting my look of surprise and disappointment at not receiving a more concrete response, the Dalai Lama said, Sometimes it's very difficult to explain why people do the things they do. You'll often find that there are no simple explanations. If we were to go into the details of individual lives, since a human being's mind is so complex, it would be quite difficult to understand what is going on. 
what exactly is taking place. I think that it would be extremely difficult to try to figure out how the minds of five billion people work. It would be an impossible task. From the Buddhist viewpoint, there are many factors contributing to any given event or situation. There can be so many factors at play, in fact, that sometimes you may never have a full explanation of what's going on, at least not in conventional terms. So that was the point I was just making, that he doesn't claim to have all the answers. But he goes on to give plenty of uh, pointers and advice. They probably wouldn't call it advice, he'd probably call it guidance on how we can improve our lives. So this first chapter is the right to happiness. And the Dalai Lama says to Cutler, I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. And then Cutler says, on a basic human level, I couldn't help but respond to the idea of happiness as an achievable goal. As a psychiatrist, however, I had been burdened by notions such as Freud's belief that one feels inclined to say that the intention that man should be happy is not included in the plan of creation. This type of training had led many in my profession to the grim conclusion that the most one could hope for was the transformation of historic misery into common unhappiness. From that standpoint, the claim that there was a clearly defined path to happiness seemed like quite a radical idea. As I look back over my years of psychiatric training, I could rarely recall having heard the word happiness even mentioned as a therapeutic objective. Of course, there was plenty of talk about relieving the patient's symptoms of depression or anxiety, of resolving internal conflicts or relationship problems, but never with the expressly stated goal of becoming happy. The concept of achieving true happiness has in the West always seemed ill-defined, elusive, ungraspable. Even the word happy is derived from the Icelandic word hap, meaning luck or chance. Most of us, it seems, share this view of the mysterious nature of happiness. In those moments of joy that life brings, happiness feels like something that comes out of the blue. To my Western mind, it didn't seem the sort of thing that one could develop and sustain simply by training the mind. And the Dalai Lama said, When I say training the mind, in this context I'm not referring to mind merely as one's cognitive ability or intellect. Rather, I'm using the term in the sense of the Tibetan word sem, which has a much broader meaning, closer to psyche or spirit. It includes intellect and feeling, heart and mind. By bringing about a certain inner discipline, we can undergo a transformation of our attitude, our entire outlook and approach to living. And a bit later, Cutler says, The Dalai Lama claims to have found some measure of personal happiness, and throughout the week he spent in Arizona, I often witnessed how this personal happiness can manifest as a simple willingness to reach out to others, to create a feeling of affinity and goodwill, even in the briefest of encounters. And there are a couple of times when Cutler does observe, sometimes from a distance, someone meeting the Dalai Lama and this aura of peace and tranquility actually could almost create change in an instant. Again, not the total transformation, but just um, a palpable sense that you know, you're know you in, in the company of someone who, who has a certain serenity, and that can rub off on you. So on the next page, researchers have devised some interesting experiments demonstrating that happy people exhibit a certain quality of openness, a willingness to reach out and help others. They manage, for instance, to induce a happy mood in a test subject by arranging to have the person unexpectedly find money in a phone booth. Posing as a stranger, one of the experimenters then walked by and accidentally dropped a load of papers. The investigators wanted to see whether the subject would stop to help the stranger. In another scenario, the subject's spirits were lifted by listening to a comedy album. Then they were approached by someone in need, also in cahoots with the experimenter, wanting to borrow money. The investigators discovered that the subjects who were feeling happy were more likely to help someone or to lend money 
than another control group of individuals who were presented with the same opportunity to help, but whose mood had not been boosted ahead of time. We begin then with the basic premise that the purpose of our life is to seek happiness. It is a vision of happiness as a real objective, one that we can take positive steps towards achieving. And as we begin to identify the factors that lead to a happy life, we will learn how the search for happiness offers benefits not only for the individual, but for the individual's family and for society at large as well. So I'd certainly agree with that, the idea of spreading happiness. And in fact, just going back to the emotional intelligence episode, the very first thing was about a bus driver whose gregarious aura of positivity spread to his passengers. And then Goldman in that book posited the idea that those people who had been lifted by this bus driver would then lift other people and it would spread. Going back to the the thing where they gave money to someone to put them in a good mood, that might seem quite a strange example for this book where um, certainly the Dalai Lama makes a case, a very strong case against uh, materialism bringing happiness. But anyway, the point was, if you're in a happy mood, you're more likely to help others. So the next part is called The Sources of Happiness. And Cutler talks about a friend of his having an unexpected windfall. This friend had got involved with a a company who had enjoyed a lot of success and they'd been bought out by a large conglomerate, so this person had lots of money. Just around the time that my friend was cashing in on her windfall profits, I had another friend of the same age who found out he was HIV positive. We spoke about how he was dealing with his HIV status. The friend says, of course I was devastated at first, and it took me almost a year just to come to terms with the fact that I had the virus, but over the past year things have changed. I seem to get more out of each day than I ever did before, and on a moment-to-moment basis I feel happier than I ever have. I just seem to appreciate everyday things more, and I'm grateful that so far I haven't developed any severe AIDS symptoms, and I can really enjoy the things I have. I've always tended to be a confirmed materialist, but over the past year, coming to terms with my mortality has opened up a whole new world. I've started exploring spirituality for the first time in my life, reading a lot of books on the subject and talking to people, discovering so many things that I've never even thought about before. It makes me excited about just getting up in the morning, about seeing what the day will bring. Both these people illustrate the essential point that happiness is determined more by one's state of mind than by external events. Success may result in a temporary feeling of elation, or tragedy may send us into a period of depression, but sooner or later our overall level of happiness tends to migrate back to a certain baseline. Psychologists call this process adaptation, and we can see how this principle operates in our everyday life. A pay rise, a new car, or recognition from our peers may lift our mood for a while, but we soon return to our customary level of happiness. In the same way, an argument with a friend, a car in the repair shop, or a minor injury may put us in a foul mood, within a matter of days, our spirits rebound. So he's using um, a couple of trivial examples there. But then obviously earlier he had given the other example of someone getting, I don't know how much it was, but millions even. You know, lottery winners is a perfect example. So you take a lottery winner and then you take a person who's diagnosed HIV positive or is paralyzed. And I'm not totally of the opinion that someone who's let's say paralyzed from the neck down and there'll be an example of that famous example in a minute and somebody wins the lottery that they're both going to return to the baseline of happiness but i think the point is a good one the general point that there is a baseline and that it's very very dangerous to expect money to solve your problems i think we all know that another example i wanted to to give was um i haven't watched telly for years to be honest but uh Back in the day when we didn't have too many channels to choose from and we just pretty much watched whatever was on as a family, 
there'd be a lot of programs about Brits moving to paradise, you know, deciding to up sticks and, I don't know, move to wherever. Australia was, would be a good example because it's the same language and a similar culture, but it's in the sun, it's many, many miles away, you know, getting away from your life. And there was a certain stat that, I don't know, 60 or 70, over 50% returned within five years, something like that. And the mistake we felt that they made was to think that they were suddenly going to be happy. Whereas if you look at it another way, let's say that me as an English teacher, I get a job in uh, Rio, let's say, because I've been to Rio. Obviously, Rio has problems, but for an English teacher, you could have a pretty good life there and you could be right next to Copacabana Beach. And the way I look at it now, and I wouldn't when I was younger, I could say to myself, I'm still going to have more or less the same level of happiness, but I can appreciate the fact that it's going to be sunny all the time. Maybe my standard of living would go up and you can look at it that way rather than thinking of it as some magic thing. So I think, yes, we can improve our quality of life, but radical changes certainly will not come from external events. I think that's the salient point there. So just going forward a little bit, um, the Dalai Lama is talking about um, being in a calm state of mind, having peace of mind. I should mention that when we speak of a calm state of mind or peace of mind, we shouldn't confuse that with a totally insensitive, apathetic state of mind. Having a calm or peaceful state of mind doesn't mean being totally spaced out or completely empty. Peace of mind or a calm state of mind is rooted in affection and compassion. There is a very high level of sensitivity and feeling there. Summarising, he said, as long as there is a lack of the inner discipline that brings calmness of mind, no matter what external facilities or conditions you have, they will never give you the feeling of joy and happiness that you are seeking. On the other hand, if you possess this inner quality, a calmness of mind, a degree of stability within, then even if you lack various external facilities that you would normally consider necessary for happiness, it is still possible to live a happy and joyful life. You will surely know of the actor Christopher Reeve and what happened to him. So this is Cutler talking, this is um, in the 90s, soon after this accident happened. The other night I was watching a television interview with Christopher Reeve, the actor who was thrown from a horse in 1994 and suffered a spinal cord injury which left him completely paralysed from the neck down, requiring a mechanical ventilator even to breathe. When questioned by the interviewer about how he dealt with the depression resulting from his disability, Reeve revealed that he had experienced a brief period of complete despair while in the intensive care unit of the hospital. He went on to say, however, that these feelings of despair passed relatively quickly and he now sincerely considered himself to be a lucky guy. He cited the blessings of a lovely wife and children, but also spoke gratefully about the rapid advances of modern medicine, which he estimates will find a cure for spinal cord injury within the next decade, stating that if he had been hurt just a few years earlier, he probably would have died from his injuries. And Reeve goes on to say that he felt intermittent pangs of jealousy if somebody said something like, I'm going to run upstairs, or, you know, an innocent remark. And he mentions that, he didn't have a brain injury, so he still has a mind he can use. Now, I, you know, I take Mr. Reeve at his word. He was still alive at this time. Obviously, he died uh, not long after that. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you because uh, I'm still not sure. You know, I'm sure the old question, if you could push a button and go back to before he's had, he had his accident, I would find it hard to believe that he wouldn't press that button. But I think what he's saying is once it's happened, you know, humans are very adaptable. That's one of the great things about us. I think the thing that should be encouraged then would be to accept this new reality very, very quickly and work around it. And you don't have to have a serious spinal cord injury for that. If you lose your job or your partner leaves you, perhaps suddenly 
my advice would just be accept it immediately, you know, as, as quickly as you can, leaving aside the frailties of human emotion. There's an interesting section just after that about happiness versus pleasure. Every day we are faced with numerous decisions and choices, and try as we may, we often don't choose the thing that we know is, quote, good for us. Part of this is related to the fact that the right choice is often the difficult one, the one that involves some sacrifice of our pleasure. In every century, men and women have struggled with trying to define the proper role that pleasure should play in our lives. A legion of philosophers, theologists and psychologists, all exploring our relationship with pleasure. In the 3rd century BC, Epicurus based his system of ethics on the bold assertion that pleasure is the beginning and end of the blessed life. But even Epicurus acknowledged the importance of common sense and moderation, recognising that unbridled devotion to sensual pleasures could sometimes lead to pain instead. Of course, there's Dionysus as well, the great hedonist, who would have said that pleasure is one of the most important things. Cutler gives a story of a woman called Heather. She was a young single professional working as a counsellor in the Phoenix area. Although she enjoyed her job working with troubled youth, she had become increasingly dissatisfied with living in Phoenix. She complained about the growing population, the traffic and the oppressive heat in the summer. She had been offered a job in a beautiful small town in the mountains. In fact, she had visited that town many times and had always dreamed of moving there. It was perfect. The only problem was the fact that the job she was offered involved an adult clientele. For weeks she had been struggling with the decision of whether to accept the new job. She just couldn't make up her mind. She tried making up a list of pros and cons, but the list was annoyingly even. So put yourself in that position. You've got a choice of a stressful time in the city, but with a more stimulating job, or a lovely house in the countryside, but with work that doesn't quite satisfy you. So Cutler then, thinking of the Dalai Lama's words, said to her, do you think that moving would bring you greater happiness or greater pleasure? And Heather paused for a moment, uncertain what to make of the question. Finally, she answered, I don't know, you know, I think it would bring me more pleasure than happiness. Ultimately, I don't think I'd be really happy working with that clientele. I really do get a lot of satisfaction working with the kids at my job. Simply reframing her dilemma in terms of will it bring me happiness seemed to provide a certain clarity. And you can probably guess what happened then. She stayed in Phoenix. She still complained about the summer heat, but having made the conscious decision to remain there on the basis of what she felt would ultimately make her happier, somehow made the heat more bearable. So that was an interesting dilemma there. Happiness over pleasure. So think about that in your own lives. You know, Pleasure is obviously more fun. It's more instant gratification. But I guess one of the motifs of this book, is, and something that does get a bit easier as you get older, is um, delayed gratification over instant gratification. And uh, a lot of you will know what the marshmallow test is. I mentioned this in the Emotional Intelligence episodes that kids who are able to forego one marshmallow with the proviso that they get two marshmallows after five minutes, they were the minority who managed to do that, but they generally were more successful in life. Okay, the next part is the path to happiness. This is Cutler, again, responding to the Dalai Lama. I'm just curious, you mentioned that there are thousands of different states of mind. What would be your definition of a psychologically healthy or well-adjusted person? We might use such a definition as a guideline in determining which mental states to cultivate and which ones to eliminate. The Dalai Lama laughed, then with his characteristic humility he responded, As a psychiatrist you might have a better definition of a psychologically healthy person. And Cutler replies, But I mean from your standpoint. 
And he replied, well, I would regard a compassionate, warm, kind-hearted person as healthy. If you maintain a feeling of compassion, loving kindness, then something automatically opens your inner door. Through that, you can communicate much more easily with other people, and that feeling of warmth creates a kind of openness. You'll find that all human beings are just like you, so you'll be able to relate to them more easily. That gives you a spirit of friendship. Then there's less need to hide things, and as a result, feelings of fear, self-doubt and insecurity are automatically dispelled. Also, it creates a feeling of trust from other people. Otherwise, for example, you might find someone who is very competent, and you know that you can trust that person's competence, but if you sense that person is not kind, then you have to hold something back. You feel that, oh, I know that person can do things, but can I really trust him? So you will always have a certain apprehension which creates a kind of distance from him. So anyway, I think that cultivating positive mental states like kindness and compassion definitely leads to better psychological health and happiness. So there you go, very much homespun wisdom. It's very simple, isn't it? It's not complicated, but just hearing it, I think, is, uh, is useful. When I was reading this book, I mean, something I was going to say at the beginning, I didn't find great revelations, let's say. I mean, there were a few in there, you know, the thing with happiness and pleasure I'd never really considered. There's plenty of stuff that I hadn't considered deeply, but uh, it, this book is a wonderful consolidation of um, some great ideas. This is Cutler here. The systematic training of the mind, the cultivation of happiness, the genuine inner transformation by deliberately selecting and focusing on positive mental states and challenging negative mental states is possible because of the very structure and function of the brain. We are born with brains that are genetically hardwired with certain instinctual behavior patterns. We are predisposed mentally, emotionally and physically to respond to our environment in ways that enable us to survive. These basic sets of instructions are encoded in countless innate nerve cell activation patterns, specific combinations of brain cells that fire in response to any given event, experience or thought. But the wiring in our brains is not static, not irrevocably fixed. Our brains are also adaptable. Neuroscientists have documented the fact that the brain can design new patterns, new combinations of nerve cells and neurotransmitters, which are chemicals that transmit messages between nerve cells, in response to new input. In fact, our brains are malleable, ever-changing, reconfiguring their wiring according to new thoughts and experiences, and as a result of learning, the function of individual neurons themselves change, allowing electrical signals to travel along them more readily. Scientists call the brain's inherent capacity to change plasticity. So there you are. I mean, that's inspiring stuff. You know, our brains can change. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, humans are made to adapt. It's how we've survived. So um, change is possible. Think of that along with what I said earlier about the fact that radical changes usually don't come quickly. It can happen, though, you know. Don't rule it out. Everybody is different, of course, but it's inspiring to know that we can change. So going forward a little bit, we get to the question of human nature. Hmm. Now, in my other guise, let's say in the outer truth part of Life and Life Only, which deals with um, mainstream media and this ridiculously limited view that we're given of the world and the marginalizing of alternative information, one of the things that frequently comes up is human nature versus propaganda. When I first, I don't know, awakened to the idea that, you know, our daily newspaper wasn't telling us everything we needed to know, one of the things I rubbed up against a lot when discussing it with people, you know, when I used to work with activists and things, and we would show documentaries and have Q&As afterwards and all that kind of thing, 
And what would inevitably come up, someone at some point would say, ah, that's just human nature. But I would like to alert you to a video, which I will put in the show notes. And I think it's called Noam Chomsky, What We Really Want. And it's a conversation. I don't know exactly the context of the conversation, but Chomsky is having a conversation or an interview and there's an audience present. And the person who's chairing it, who's interviewing Chomsky, says something along the lines of, you know, girls want to put on makeup and, you know, be very, he didn't use the word superficial, but be very conscious of their physical appearance. And he said, and I, when I come home after a hard day at work, I want to have a beer and maybe eat corn chips. And again, not his exact words, but along the lines of, you know, watch rubbish on TV, you know. And he said, oh, isn't that human nature? And Chomsky said, no, it's not. He said, it's a 100-year systematic effort by the advertising industry, which is, for me, is inextricably linked with the propaganda industry, to make people like that, to make people superficial. So they will buy products. And again, with my conspiratorial mind, I would also say that the mainstream media is part of that. You look at 24-hour news and sound bites. It's all designed to give you a short attention span and to be very malleable to the idea that there are much more glamorous people out there. And, you know, you may as well just eat corn chips. And, you know, girls, just be superficial. Put makeup on. I mean, if you want one thing to research, look up the makeup industry. It's disgusting. So uh, I'd like you to watch that video if you're interested in this talk. And this idea that, you know, again, human nature. I mean, you know, what about if you've had a thousand years of conditioning, let's say? Wouldn't that become quote-unquote natural? You know, when you pass things on to the next generation, the next generation, what we grow up with seems natural. You know, if you're unlucky enough to grow up, I don't know, with two parents who are heroin addicts or something, that will be your normal. And you might believe that that's human nature to turn to drugs when, hard drugs, when life gets too hard, you know? I'm just not sure about human nature at all. Although, conversely, I would recommend Robert Greene's book, The Laws of Human Nature. I think he's got as close as you could to nailing it. But uh, I'm just not sure where nature ends and conditioning starts. Again, if you're interested in, to learn how the world works, study advertising propaganda. You, you can do it yourself. You, know? you don't need to enroll on a course and pay lots of money. Everything is there for you now. Got all the information you could possibly need. Anyway, moving forward, this is looking at the idea that we are predominantly selfish and that we're violent and that's our nature. This is Cutler talking. After implicitly accepting the premise of our essential selfishness, a number of very prominent scientists over the past hundred years have added to this a belief in the essential aggressive nature of humans. Freud claimed, quote, the inclination to aggression is an original self-subsisting instinctual disposition. In the latter half of this century, two writers in particular, Robert Ardrey and Conrad Lorenz, looked at patterns of animal behaviour in certain predator species and concluded that humans were basically predators as well, with an innate or instinctive drive to fight over territory. In recent years, however, the tide appears to be turning on this profoundly pessimistic view of humanity, coming closer to the Dalai Lama's view of our underlying nature as gentle and compassionate. Over the past two or three decades, there have been literally hundreds of scientific studies indicating that aggression is not essentially innate, and that violent behaviour is influenced by a variety of biological, social, situational and environmental factors. And there was a study in 1986 in Seville. They of course acknowledged that violent behaviour does occur, but they categorically stated that it is scientifically incorrect to say that we have an inherited tendency to make war 
or act violently, that behavior is not genetically programmed into human nature. Contemporary researchers have refuted not only the idea of humanity's innate aggression, but the idea that humans are innately selfish and egoistic has also come under attack. Investigators such as C. Daniel Batson or Nancy Eisenberg at Arizona State University have conducted numerous studies over the past few years that demonstrate that humans have a tendency towards altruistic behavior. Some scientists, such as sociologist Dr. Linda Wilson, seek to discover why this is so. She has theorized that altruism may be part of our basic survival instinct, the very opposite to the ideas of earlier thinkers who theorized that hostility and aggression were the hallmark of our survival instinct. Looking at over a 100 natural disasters, Dr. Wilson found a strong pattern of altruism among disaster victims, which seemed to be part of the recovery process. She found that working together to help each other tended to ward off later psychological problems that might have resulted from the trauma. Reaching out to help others may be as fundamental to our nature as communication. One could draw an analogy with the development of language, which, like the capacity for compassion and altruism, is one of the magnificent features of the human race. Particular areas of the brain are specifically devoted to the potential for language. If we are exposed to the correct environmental conditions, that is, a society that speaks, then those discrete areas of the brain begin to develop and mature, and our capacity for language grows. In the same way, all humans may be endowed with the seed of compassion. When exposed to the right conditions, that seed will flourish. So the message there really is um, perhaps it's environmental pressures that make us aggressive to some extent. But also, you know, think again, the advertising industry, you know, and social media now, it's all encouraging narcissism, being selfish, you know, the, the move towards individualism, very well covered in in Adam Curtis's documentary, The Century of the Self, you know, that's, that's a pretty systematic move there. And um, obviously the perpetuation of war, if you ask the average person in the street, you'll find they're not in favour of war. And the whole war machine really is probably more a feature of capitalism, high-level capitalism than anything else, than anything to do with the average person living their life. Anyway, there's so much to cover, I don't think I'm going to be able to solve that particular <laughs> riddle, but yeah, something to think about. So at the end of this chapter is Cutler saying, The Dalai Lama's understanding of the factors that ultimately lead to happiness is based on a lifetime of methodically observing his own mind, exploring the nature of the human condition, and investigating these things within a framework first established by the Buddha over 25 centuries ago. And from this background, the Dalai Lama has come to some definite conclusions about which activities and thoughts are most worthwhile. He summarizes beliefs in the following words, which can be used as a meditation. This is the Dalai Lama then. Sometimes when I meet old friends, it reminds me how quickly time passes, and it makes me wonder if we've utilized our time properly or not. Proper utilization of time is so important. While we have this body, and especially this amazing human brain, I think every minute is something precious. Our day-to-day -day existence is very much alive with hope, although there is no guarantee of our future. So we need to make the best use of our time. I believe that the proper utilization of time is this. If you can, serve other people, other sentient beings. If not, at least refrain from harming them. I think that is the whole basis of my philosophy. In fact, last year I was reading the memoir of Michael Caine. You never thought he'd be in this, but uh, he also talked about, you know, I live every moment of the day. And, you know, some would say, well, it's easier for him. There's something about that later on, about what can a working mother do in terms of, you know, meditating and things like that. We'll get to that later. But I think anyone in any situation can do that, you know, just to live every minute, you know, try and be aware of every minute, not overthink it, but try not to succumb to this 
hazy, busy state of being easily distracted and I think they call it the scattered mind. So trying to be alive to every moment. The next section is called Loneliness and Connection. Cutler actually asks the Dalai Lama, do you ever get lonely? No, he said simply. I was unprepared for this response. I assume that his response would be along the lines of, of course, every once in a while, everyone feels some loneliness. Then I was planning on asking him how he deals with it. I never expected to confront anyone who never felt lonely. And Cutler asks him, what do you attribute that to? He thought for a moment. I think one factor is that I look at any human being from a more positive angle. I try to look for their positive aspects. This attitude immediately creates a feeling of affinity, a kind of connectedness. And it may partly be because on my part there is less apprehension, less fear, that if I act in a certain way, maybe the person will lose respect or think that I'm strange. Because that kind of fear and apprehension is normally absent, there is a kind of openness. I think it's the main factor. Cutler replied, but how would you suggest that a person achieves the ability to feel that comfortable with people, not have that fear or apprehension of being disliked or judged by others? And the Dalai Lama says, my basic belief is that you first need to realise the usefulness of compassion. That's the key factor. Once you accept the fact that compassion is not something childish or sentimental, once you realise that compassion is something really worthwhile, realise its deeper value, then you immediately develop an attraction towards it, a willingness to cultivate it. And once you encourage the thought of compassion in your mind, once that thought becomes active, then your attitude towards others changes automatically. If you approach others with the thought of compassion, that will automatically reduce fear and allow an openness with other people. It creates a positive, friendly atmosphere. With that attitude, you can approach a relationship in which you, yourself, initially create the possibility of receiving affection or a positive response from the other person. And with that attitude, even if the other person is unfriendly or doesn't respond to you in a positive way, then at least you've approached the person with a feeling of openness that gives you a certain flexibility and the freedom to change your approach as needed. I think another thing about humans is that we all pick up on the cues that the other people are giving. You know, they could be conscious, subconscious, unconscious. It doesn't matter. If you, if you do spread um, a certain feeling, you know, there may be some people that you will never reach or it's very difficult to reach. But certainly, you know, if you think of yourself in an office situation where you're seeing people every single day, perhaps not now in this in the COVID era, but certainly before that, if you spread that feeling consistently, I guarantee you it will change people's lives. And they may not even tell you about it, but that's, I suppose that's another thing is not needing to know that you've changed someone's life, you know, just doing it as a an instinct. It's almost a kind of a spiritual altruism, if you want to call it that. Now, on the subject of loneliness... Cutler says, because of the widespread occurrence of loneliness, investigators have begun to examine the complex variables that may contribute to it. For instance, they've found that lonely individuals often have problems with self-disclosure, have difficulty communicating with others, are poor listeners, and lack certain social skills such as picking up conversational cues, knowing when to nod, to respond appropriately, or to remain silent. This research suggests that one strategy for overcoming loneliness would be to work on improving these social skills. The Dalai Lama's strategy, however, seemed to bypass working on social skills or external behaviours in favour of an approach that cut directly to the heart, realising the value of compassion and then cultivating it. So what I would suggest is, um, whether you read this book or not, is to take bits of the East and bits of the West because um, we've definitely got stuff to learn from each other. Again, I'm using West and East very broadly, but you know, when I was in Thailand, there was a clear difference between Thai culture and the more or less similar culture that English, Australian, American, New Zealand's that we were bringing to it. 
you know, it's not um, offensive to talk about Western East. And um, one of the things is that a lot of expats, teachers, let's say, who go to the, the Far East or let's say Asia, for example, China, Japan, what you'll find is that they spend a lot of the time criticizing the local culture and fighting against it, which is ultimately very futile. What I tried to do after a while was try to see well, which bits do I think we've got better in the West and which bits do they do better? You know, and one of the things is that um, clearly, again, this is based on being there a few years, average English American thinks more than the average Thai person. And that's borne out by research, that's borne out by talking to my students and things like that. And which is better, you know, maybe uh, Thai people should analyse things a bit more sometimes, but then maybe we drive ourselves crazy analysing things. So what I would say, you know, general message, take the best of your own uh, basic culture and when you meet other cultures, just you can almost draw up a pros and cons list, you know. Do they live in the moment more than me? Is that a good thing or not? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But, you know, we can all learn from each other. I can tell you, even at this point, this is going to be an absolute marathon. So strap yourselves in. I was planning to do this all in one sitting, but I don't think that's going to happen. Anyway. So the next part is on the topic of intimacy. Cutler is in conversation with the Dalai Lama and says, for instance, there's a certain type of relationship that's highly valued in the West. That is a relationship that's characterized by a deep level of intimacy between two people. Having one special person with whom you can share your deepest feelings, fears and so on. People feel that unless they have a relationship of this kind, that there is something missing in their lives. In fact, Western psychotherapy often seeks to help people learn how to develop that kind of intimate relationship. The Dalai Lama responded, Yes, I believe that kind of intimacy can be seen as something positive. I think if someone is deprived of that kind of intimacy, then it can lead to problems. So Cutler says, I'm just wondering then, when you were growing up in Tibet, you were not only considered to be a king, but you were also considered to be a deity. I seem that people were in awe of you, perhaps even a bit nervous or frightened to be in your presence. Didn't that create a certain emotional distance from others, a feeling of isolation? And he also asked later, do you ever feel that you missed out on developing a deeper level of personal intimacy with others or with one special person, such as a spouse? Without hesitation, the Dalai Lama replied, no, I never felt a lack of intimacy. Of course, my father passed away many years ago, but I felt quite close to my mother, my teachers, my tutors and others. And with many of these people, I could share my deepest feelings, fears and concerns. And he talks about um, on state occasions and public events, although they seem quite formal, he would spend time in the kitchen and talk to the kitchen staff. And you see that a lot with that other, yeah, if I call him a celebrity, as I'm sure he wouldn't want to be called that, but famous people, a lot, a lot of them, um, Paul McCartney's an example, apparently makes a point when he goes on tour of talking to the most lowly, <laughs> not a great word, but you know, the lower status people, the ordinary people. And, uh, I think with famous people, that would be clearly a way of handling it to retain your contact with the normals, the proles, <laughs> as George Orwell in 1984 would probably say. So later on, concepts of the most ideal form of intimacy also vary throughout the world in history. The romantic notion of that one special person with whom we have a passionate, intimate relationship is a product of our time and culture. But this model of intimacy is not universally accepted among all cultures. For instance, the Japanese seem to rely more on friendships to gain intimacy, whereas Americans seek it more in romantic relationships with a spouse. In noting this, some researchers have suggested that Asians who tend to be less focused on personal feelings such as passion 
and are more concerned with the practical aspects of social engagement appear less vulnerable to the kind of disillusionment that leads to the crumbling of relationships. There is some talk uh, about marriage here as well. And um, I mean, I haven't been married, but um, people I've spoken to will say that. And this is in fact addressed, I will get to this later. After a while, the a marriage becomes a partnership, you know, and there can still be a romance and there can still be passion. But this idea that, you know, you're going to be all over each other for the rest of your life and that if that stops happening something terrible has changed that's also addressed the idea of um, dealing with change today so many of us are oppressed by a feeling of something missing in our lives intensely suffering from a lack of intimacy this is particularly true when we go through the inevitable periods of our life when we're not involved in a romantic relationship or when the passion wanes from a relationship there's a widespread notion in our culture that deep intimacy is best achieved within the context of a passionate romantic relationship that special someone who we set apart from all others. This can be a profoundly limiting viewpoint, cutting us off from other potential sources of intimacy and the cause of much misery and unhappiness when that special someone isn't there. So I think really just the the theme of that section was about chasing fulfilment. And it just ends by saying the Dalai Lama's model of intimacy is based on a willingness to open ourselves to many others, to family, friends and even strangers, forming genuine and deep bonds based on our common humanity. That's one of the themes of the book, you know, that we're all humans and that the way to gain rapport with people, and you'll see this in self-help books as well and on uh, podcasts about making yourself more charming and things like that. One of the things is um, recognising the things we have in common. So the next part is called Deepening Our Connection to Others. And uh, Cutler just gives an example of um, a middle-aged couple and the wife was a well-known heiress and the husband an extremely wealthy, high-powered Manhattan attorney. And Cutler said they both struck me as unbelievably haughty. Basically means superior. Someone who has a superior air about them. As they emerged from the Dalai Lama's hotel suite, I noticed a startling change. Gone was the arrogant manner and smug expression. And in their place were two faces suffused with tenderness and emotion. They were like two children. Streams of tears ran down both faces. Although the Dalai Lama's effect on others was not always so dramatic, I noticed that invariably others responded to him with some shift of emotion. He talks about his admiration for the Dalai Lama's ability to bond with others, and I think that comes from the things that he was saying in the previous section. And that, you know, he's worked at it, all that meditation he does, and I think later on they talk about how long he spends in prayer and meditation a day. You know, it's not five minutes, it's a lot more than that. And uh, clearly, you know, as I said earlier, it does rub off on people. Next part is about establishing empathy. And the Dalai Lama says, I think that empathy is important not only as a means of enhancing compassion, but I think that generally speaking, when dealing with others on any level, if you're having some difficulties, it's extremely helpful to be able to try to put yourself in the other person's place and see how you'd react to the situation. Even if you have no common experience with the other person or have a very different lifestyle, you can try to do this through imagination. You may need to be slightly creative. This technique involves a capacity to temporarily suspend, insisting on your own viewpoint, or rather to look from the other person's perspective, to imagine what would be the situation if you were in his shoes, how you would deal with this. This helps you develop an awareness and respect for another's feelings, which is an important factor in reducing conflicts and problems with other people. Again, very, very simple. Later he says, Whenever I meet people, I always approach them from the standpoint of the most basic things we have in common, we each have a physical structure, a mind, emotions. We were all born in the same way and we will all die. 
All of us want happiness and do not want to suffer. Looking at others from this standpoint rather than emphasizing secondary differences such as the fact that I am Tibetan or a different color, religion or cultural background allows me to have a feeling that I'm meeting someone just the same as me. I find that relating to others on that level makes it much easier to exchange and communicate with each other. Howard Cutler then tells a very, very interesting story about um, a gentleman he met. So he says, I was invited to dinner at the home of some Tibetan friends in Dharamasala. This is in India. The meal was excellent, featuring a dazzling array of special dishes. As dinner wore on, the conversation became more animated. Soon the guests were swapping off-collar stories about the most embarrassing thing they ever did while drunk. And then he talks about a well-known couple from Germany, and the husband is a writer and author of a dozen books. Cutler approached him and asked about his writings, and he says, His replies were short and perfunctory, his manner blunt and standoffish. Thinking him rather unfriendly, even snobbish, I took an immediate dislike to him. Well, at least I made an attempt to connect with him, I consoled myself, and satisfied that he was simply a disagreeable person, I turned to conversation with some of the more amiable guests. The next day he runs into a friend and they start talking about the party, and he mentions this fellow whose name was Rolf. He says, oh, he seemed arrogant, unfriendly. And his friend says, I know he comes across that way, but it's just that he's a bit shy, a bit reserved. He really is a wonderful person if you get to know him. And then she says, Rolf has really suffered a lot. His family suffered tremendously at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. And he's had two children whom he's been very devoted to, born with some rare genetic disorder that left them extremely physically and mentally handicapped. Instead of becoming bitter or spending his life playing the martyr, he dealt with his problems by reaching out to others and spent many years devoting himself to working with the handicapped as a volunteer. He really is quite special if you get to know him. So I think Cutler meets Rolf again at the end of that week and having had all this information his attitude to him completely changes as a result i made an effort to sustain a conversation with him initially his manner remained the same but with just that little bit of openness and persistence i soon discovered that as my friend had said his standoffishness was more likely due to shyness and snobbery as we rattled through the sweltering dusty northern indian countryside moving ever deeper into conversation he proved to be a warm genuine human being and a stalwart travelling companion. So there you are. I mean, I've had that before as well. I'm sure we all have, that we make snap judgments. It's very difficult. Someone once said the human mind is a judgment machine. <laughs> Again, though, it could be conditioning. You know, I'm not going to say that's human nature, the sacred human nature. But, you know, whether it's conditioning or, or otherwise, it can happen. So again, just take a step back. If someone's rude to you, you have no idea what's been happening in their life. If there's someone you don't know, I mean, even your friends, you know, you don't always know them. You don't always know yourself. So if it's a stranger, then you're very unlikely to be able to gauge everything from their outward appearances. Going forward a little bit, this is talking about the underlying basis of a relationship. And this is the Dalai Lama. So first of all, one has to recognize that there are different types of relationships and understand the differences between them. For example, leaving aside the issue of marriage for a moment, even within ordinary friendships, we can recognize that there are different types of friendships. Some friendships are based on wealth, power or position. In these cases, your friendship continues as long as your power, wealth or position is sustained. Once these grounds are no longer there, then the friendship will also begin to disappear. On the other hand, there is another kind of friendship. Friendships that are based not on considerations of wealth, power and position, but rather on true human feeling, a feeling of closeness in which there is a sense of sharing and connectedness. This type of friendship is what I would call genuine friendship, because it would not be affected by the status of the individual's wealth, position or power, 
whether it is increasing or whether it is declining. The factor that sustains a genuine friendship is a feeling of affection. If you lack that, then you won't be able to sustain a genuine friendship. If you're running into relationship problems, it's often very helpful to simply stand back and reflect on the basis of that relationship. And then they go on to talking about um, the sexual attraction that comes in relationships initially, yeah, particularly, uh, this will sound horribly patronising, but with uh, teenagers, very young people, you know, the hormones are raging. It's very, very difficult to control that. And the Dalai Lama says, of course I should make it clear that one can have a good, healthy relationship that includes sexual attraction as one component. So it seems then that there can be two principal types of relationships based on sexual attraction. One type is based on pure sexual desire. In this case, the motive or the impetus behind the bond really is just temporary satisfaction, immediate gratification. In that type of relationship, individuals are relating to each other not so much as people, but rather as objects. That type of relationship is not very sound. If the relationship is based only on sexual desire without a component of mutual respect, then the relationship becomes almost like prostitution in which neither side has respect for the other. A relationship built primarily on sexual desire is like a house built on a foundation of ice. As soon as the ice melts, the building collapses. You might be asking, um, well, what does the Dalai Lama know about sex? Because I think he's been celibate his whole life. I don't want to speak for him, but uh, (laughs) I think that is borne out, though, that if something is based wholly or mostly on sexual desire, then unless the relationship can evolve, it probably will not have staying power. I don't think I'd agree that it's like prostitution. I mean, you could probably say, a friend of mine was saying that Tinder is, we know it's a meat market, it's essentially people using each other. But, you know, having said that, I think I have heard of people who have met on Tinder and ended up getting married and staying together. Anyway, this is all just me giving a few ideas from this book and then you you have to make your own mind up. Now we look at romance. So this is Cutler. The most compelling element of our pursuit of romance is a feeling of falling in love. Powerful forces are at work driving us to seek this feeling, much more than simply the glorification of romantic love which we pick up from our culture. Many researchers feel that these forces are programmed into our genes from birth. The feeling of falling in love, invariably mixed with a sense of sexual attraction, may be a genetically determined instinctual component of mating behaviour. From an evolutionary perspective, the number one job of the organism is to survive, reproduce and assure continued survival of the species. It is in the best interest of the species, therefore, if we are programmed to fall in love. It certainly increases the odds that we will mate and reproduce. Thus, we have built-in mechanisms to help make that happen. In response to certain stimuli, our brains manufacture and pump out chemicals that create a euphoric feeling, the high associated with falling in love. And while our brains are marinating in those chemicals, that feeling so overwhelms us at times that everything else seems to be blocked out. So yeah, it's a wonderful feeling, and he's not only talking about sexual attraction, he's, he's talking about that feeling of, um, this is that person, is that person I can tell everything to, that person who I can share my deepest feelings, and uh, as he said, nature is giving you the chemicals to enhance that feeling. With a lot of things, in my personal experience, chasing things doesn't work. Again, it may work for others, but if you talk to a lot of people, they will often say that they met a person who they feel is the one, or maybe their life partner, by accident, when they weren't looking. You can go on dating apps, of course, and that is intentional, but then you might, if you go on a few dates in a dating app, you might find that the person, the first time you look at someone, you think, oh, not in a million years would this be the one, you know, but then they turn out to be, you know. It's strange. So um, obviously you should listen to your heart. Again, you know, that's the, 
you know, that's been said in songs and plays and poetry, you know. Most of the stuff in this book is out there, you know. I mean, you're, you know, a lot of it's homespun wisdom. You know, your grandmother may have told you a lot, a lot of these things, and it's perfectly valid coming from her or the Dalai Lama. It doesn't matter where it comes from. So Cutler carries on. Eros, the drive towards passionate romantic love, can be seen as this ancient desire for fusion with the other half. It seems to be a universal, unconscious human need. The feeling involves a sensation of merging with the other, of boundaries breaking down, of becoming one with the loved one. Psychologists call this a collapse of ego boundaries. Some feel that this process is rooted in our earliest experience, an unconscious attempt to recreate the experience we had as infants, a primal state in which the child is completely merged with the parent or primary caregiver. Now the part of that I love is boundaries breaking down. I love that and the collapse of ego boundaries. And, uh, you know, this could come with romantic things or just with um, friends. I'm lucky enough to have uh, just a handful of friends, really, that I can meet them and I don't ever feel judged and I feel like there aren't boundaries, no, and the ego is not taking over because ego is such a big part of human life. And particularly, you know, when you're in a job situation, you know, there's power, there's ego. I think the life outside, although we can affect it, as I said earlier, you know, with small interactions... It is also worth realising that it, again, to quote, uh, I think it's a song, it's a jungle out there, you know. It's important to realise that. So um, I said, you know, the Dalai Lama seems to be a very wise man. He's done a lot of work on himself and his observations of others, I'm sure. But at the same time, you know, Cutler's insights are equally valid. That's a great thing about this book. I came out of it thinking that these guys complement each other. That's why it was a great idea for the book. One of them is not doesn't have superior wisdom and they can both learn from each other as I'm sure they did in the time they spent together there's a really interesting story that Cutler gives about uh, a former patient called David 34 year old landscape architect and he immediately came to Cutler's office with classic symptoms of a severe clinical depression and uh, Cutler mentions dysthemia or dysthymia as a more insidious form of chronic low-grade depression that had been present for many years and um, when you hear these stats that far more people are depressed than we realised, you know, you sometimes hear one in five, one in four. I think that's probably periods of depression, and sometimes they're very, very strong periods of depression that suddenly disappear when your life circumstances improve. But dysthymia, I think that's how you pronounce it, it's more just a sort of low-grade depression that lingers in the background. So anyway, um, this story of David... Uh, Cutler writes, after only a few sessions, David entered the office one day in a jubilant mood. I feel great, he declared. I haven't felt this good in years. My reaction to this wonderful news was to immediately assess him for the possibility of a shift into a manic phase of a mood disorder. That wasn't the case, however, and David says, I'm in love. I met her last week at a site that I'm bidding on. She's the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. We've gone out almost every night this week, and I don't know, it's like we're soulmates, perfect for each other etc etc david then decides suddenly to stop his therapy and you can probably guess what's going to happen here several months later david returned to my office i've been miserable he said with a dejected tone last time i saw you things were going so great i really thought i'd found my ideal mate i even brought up the subject of marriage but it seemed that the closer i wanted to become the more she pulled away she finally broke up with me i got really depressed again for a couple of weeks after that I even started calling her and hanging up just to hear her voice and driving by her work just to see if her car was there. Anyway, he carries on with that and then Cutler says, we resume therapy. 
So again, what David's doing there is what the person who manages to get a job in the sun, as I said earlier, not the newspaper, <laughs> please don't get a job there, gets a, a job in a you know exotic part of the world. This girl that he met would have seemed wonderfully uh, exotic to him or, you know, the girl of his dreams. But I think what he was having there was a severe case of uh, sexual attraction, you know, and maybe romantic as well. But again, it, it's looking for that thing that's going to be answer to all your problems. Boringly, there's probably not going to be one answer to your problems. But, you know, it can be exciting to work through it as well. So I think, um, yeah, that's a classic case. You know, I've seen this with Kai's myself, friends of mine. They just think a relationship is the be-all and end-all. And that if they're not in one, their life's over. And when they're in one, they do get in this sort of quite manic state, as uh, Cutler was saying. I just want to mention as well, M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Travelled. Very, very good book. He has rather what might be called a, a cynical view of love. And he was saying that, Often, again, the first stages of love are actually lust, if you think about it. Everything is driven by the sexual impulse in a lot of cases. And I haven't read that book for a while, but I think from memory, I think the love that Peck talks about is, again, this, this kind of friendship, this partnership based on respect, based on empathy, based on compassion. And, um, you know, a lot of people are very lucky. They get the very uh, highly charged sexual part of the relationship and the, the relationship evolves nicely into this partnership, which still involves romance, you know. Some people get lucky. There's a hell of a lot of luck in life as well. So this is Cutler again. It seems clear that as a source of happiness, romance leaves a lot to be desired. And perhaps the Dalai Lama was not far off the mark in rejecting the notion of romance as a basis for a relationship, and in describing romance as merely a fantasy, unattainable, something not worthy of our efforts. On closer examination, perhaps he was objectively describing the nature of romance rather than providing a negative value judgment coloured by his years of training as a monk. Even an objective reference source such as the dictionary, which contains well over a dozen definitions of romance and romantic, is liberally peppered with phrases such as a fictitious tale, an exaggeration, a falsehood, fanciful or imaginative, not practical, without a basis in fact, characteristic of or preoccupied with idealised lovemaking or courting, and so on. It is apparent that somewhere along the road of Western civilization, a change has taken place. The ancient concept of Eros, with the underlying sense of becoming one, of fusion with another, has taken on new meaning. Romance has acquired an artificial quality with flavours of fraudulence and deception, the quality that had led Oscar Wilde to bleakly observe, when one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself, and one always ends up by deceiving others. That is what the world calls a romance. Yeah, that sounds pretty cynical, to be honest. And I think Oscar Wilde, people like that, you know, Woody Allen as well, Mark Twain, they came up with these great quotes, but I think there is some comedy value in the cynicism. So I think that is a slight exaggeration. Cutler says, if one is looking for lasting satisfaction in a relationship, the foundation of that relationship must be solid. It is for this reason that the Dalai Lama encourages us to examine the underlying basis of a relationship should we find ourselves in a relationship that is going sour. Sexual attraction, or even the intense feeling of falling in love, may play a role in forming an initial bond between two people to draw them together. But like a good epoxy glue, that initial bonding agent needs to be mixed with other ingredients before it will harden into a lasting bond. If 
you'd like to support my work across my three podcasts, which are Life and Life Only, Glass Onion on John Lennon, and Film Gold, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Anthony Rotuno, where you can make a one-off donation or take out a monthly or yearly subscription, which will give you early access and bonus podcast content. Thanks again for listening.